Welcome to Deadhead Space, now a part of the Silver Shamrock Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume old horror paper classics for the new generation. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which now includes YouTube. That's right. You can now watch your favorite episodes, which includes this one. All you have to do is search for Deadhead Space. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today, we have with us a very special guest, a writer who has received more awards than any other writer in his field, including the Grand Master Award of the World Horror Convention, a few lifetime achievements, amongst many others. Please welcome Ramsey Campbell. Hello, sir. Hey, well, listen, guys, what, what Patrick is too polite to say is that he's exhuming an old horror writer this week. <laughs> what got you into horror? Oh, OK, so we're going to have the half an hour question first, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, how early, how far do we go back? Listen, it depends on what we mean. I mean, the, the very first thing I remember terrifying me uh, was when I was, I mean, maybe not even two years old. Now, this sounds absurd but I, I, I was terrifyingly uh, precocious you know to to a fault so I was already reading before I turned two years old and um, in England we have uh, a, a, a newspaper cartoon strip called Rupert Bear actually there was a Paul McCartney movie that possibly you saw it was a half hour animation uh, but it doesn't really matter. Rupert was a, you know, a, a staple of um, British newspapers for decades, and often enough, you know, he he encountered strange, sometimes kind of eerie things, you know, in the woods. Um, I mean, little creatures, little 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 stick men, that kind of a thing, that were supposed to be charming for kids, but. Um, weren't necessarily. And in fact, there were apparently complaints from parents over the decades saying, you know, this is too scary for our kids. Now, the one I remember, and as I say, maybe just turning two years old, was Rupert, Rupert's Christmas tree, um, in which Rupert basically uh, chooses a tree from, I mean, I'll, I'll simplify the story. He chooses a, a, a little sapling, little fir tree from the forest, uh, brings it home, or it actually comes home magically and, you know, appears in the tub outside the house. Um, Christmas Day, during the party, here's what he discovers, a little high voice behind the tree. Now, even even two years old, I was savvy enough to figure, look, that's not behind the tree, it's in the tree, it's somehow talking. And that, that you know, I mean, that, at this point, I began to get uneasy. Um, that night, he wakes in the night, hears a kind of scurrying noise downstairs, looks out the window, sees this kind of skeletal silhouette scuttling away uh, back to the forest, goes downstairs, Tub is empty. There's a trail of earth leading out the front door. He follows it. Believe me, I wished he hadn't at, the, at that at that point. Um, and eventually pursues it, you know, into the forest. And there's an image that I think was the one that ultimately did for me, um, where he's clambering up a kind of rock face, and the tree is perched above him on its roots. It's kind of scrawny roots, claw-like roots, and kind of. It would be peering down at him if it had a head, so it's kind of bending its top down towards him. Now, you know, all these images, the, you know, the little high voice, the, the sound you hear in the night, this kind of the, the trail of earth, for God's sake. It's all, you know, classic M.R. Jamesian, 
supernatural horror stuff. And, you know, presumably it was meant to be toned down for kids, but all that meant for me was it showed just enough to suggest infinitely worse, you know, and already my, my imagination was working in that way. So, okay, skip forward not many, many years, because by the age I was six, I was borrowing books from the adult local public library on my mother's ticket with, with her say-so, because, you know, books in libraries, hardcover books apparently were respectable. You couldn't buy pulp magazines, but, you know, not six years old you couldn't, uh, although there's a bit of a story to come on that in a moment. Um, but, you know, little did she know that half the books I read out of the library were, you know, collections from the pulp, the very pulps that, that she would have disapproved of. But anyway, that, that's, that's another story. Now, six years old... I borrowed um, 50 years of ghost stories from the public library. Now, you know, ghost story, horror story, they, they, those are terms I think that overlap a great deal. You know, a lot of what you call a ghost story, supernatural horror, a lot of M.R. James's for sure. And the, 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 the image that really stood, there were two actually, two images out of that but really stayed in my mind when I wished they wouldn't, you know, when I was trying to get to sleep at night. One of which was somebody opening uh, a chest of drawers and opening one drawer after another. And on the bottom, uh, there's just a you know, bundle of linen and a little pink hand comes groping out of it, something like a baby's hand. And then the, the other image was of somebody going into a room in the dark and seeing something very vaguely in the, in, in, the, in the gloom. And then enormous feelers like you know, insect legs come groping out of the dark and feel over his face. Now, you know, either of those you know, would, would, would have given me a many sleepless night put together. Uh, they, they gave me decidedly you know, weak, weak, weeks of unease. Now, it turned out both of those are from an M.R. James story, uh, The Residence with Minster. And so, you know, the, 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 I suppose we could say that in terms of adult horror fiction, James was the first to do it for me. And from that point onward, really, I was borrowing everything from the library that I could, I could find that was within the field. But science fiction, too. But then again, you know, a lot of science fiction, probably particularly more then than now, a lot of short science fiction, you know, a lot of Bradbury, a lot of Frank Long, and there were some early, you know, some small scale Lovecraft stories within these anthologies. So I, I was really, you know, getting to know the classics um, at a very early age. And, you know, b before long, I was allowed to buy books, certainly uh, hardcovers, you know, because, again, they were respectable. So, you know, I got my collected Edgar Allan Poe and eventually got my collected M.R. James. And then, you know, by gum, those, those did for me all over again. I think it was probably James more than any other single writer, you know, who who just did it so intensely that that that, that they 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 were they were what I most wanted. I suppose we we could say this, you know, you I know you guys will agree with this. That the, the the difference between a horror fan and the people who say no, I don't like this stuff is that you know, effectively it's probably it's doing the same to us as it does to that person. Whereas they say, right, I don't want any more of that. We, we want to go back and repeat the experience or, you know, have something comparable. So that's, that's what makes us what we are. Absolutely. And, you know, oh my gosh, this, I got so many thoughts there. But uh, let's, let's start with the imagery you gave us from the M.R. James story. You know, you, you kind of finished up by saying that imagery might have the same effect universally, whereas we want to dive deeper into it. We want to explore it further. And yeah, as soon as you described those and also the, uh, 
imagery from the Rupert Bear story, my first reaction was, oh, no, 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 thanks. But then right after that passes, I say, OK, now I want to know more. I want to know what's attached to the end of that tiny pink fist. Um, <laughs> or do I? Maybe I don't. Um, well, you won't find out, actually. That, that That's as far as he goes with that. But yeah. Well, and that's the thing is, is my imagination is going to potentially conjure up way worse stuff than a reveal at the end of a story. So I think that's the perfect way to play it. Now, yeah. I'm curious, uh, not being familiar with Rupert Bear, mm. do you feel like that episode and maybe some other ones were universally accepted as, wow, this is kind of some creepy stuff? Or is it just, is that the imagination of somebody who'd go on to become a writer? Um, putting connotations on it? Uh, probably a bit of both, I suspect, because, you know, while I don't know that any, I've not seen any other reactions besides mine to that particular story, um, you know, I, I, as I say, that were, there were a fair number of complaints to, it was the Daily Express that used to run the, the strip, actually, for, you know, in, from the 30s onwards, really. And funnily enough, my old friend Mark Morris, you know, the, the horror writer, um, he cites a different Rupert Bear story. Well, actually, there were a group of Rupert Bear stories with these these little sort of gnarled stick creatures whose oh, I can't remember the name of them now. But but you know it, 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 that did similarly for him uh, as the the Christmas tree did for me. So, um, but of course that may just mean that you know we 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 are particularly warped, you know, Mark and I, and uh, no no wonder we we ended up the way we have. <laughs> um. Brennan, you got anything else to add to this? If not, I have a question uh, of Ramsey's older stuff, I think. No, of... no, I'll, th I'll throw it to you in a second. I was just okay. going to comment. Yeah. I, I read a story uh, a couple months ago, just released in 2020, that kind of preys on the same type of stuff that, you know, uh, a family brings a Christmas tree into the home and it's you you hear kind of scurrying around in it and it just, you know, embarks on this whole big thing. Now I'm starting to wonder, is that... Because uh, the the author of that story is not uh, a British author, maybe they are familiar with the series, but um, I'm wondering if that's inspiration or if that's just you know a universal fear. Maybe universal. Um, do, do you remember who wrote this story? Yeah, it was uh, Ronald Kelly, and his uh, he put out a book uh, of Christmas horror stories uh, in December. That's interesting because there's also an H. Russell Wakefield story that's very much uh, um, sort of along those lines. Except in the, in the Russell Wakefield, it's particularly a sort of pagan thing. You know, it, it actually appears to have been taken from a druidic grove. So you know, they 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 get what you might expect from that. Um, but now this there's a strange thing now that this uh, this is sort of this is going off the point a little bit, but maybe not that much. Um, <laughs> I think it is kind of universal because there are two things. You know, I, the other thing you can't predict, I think, is particularly when you're young, is what's going to terrify you. You know, or indeed what's going to terrify your children. And we found this with with both of ours. You see, because our daughter, you know, the, our, our daughter and our son are now way grown up and, you know, living living away. Our daughter, daughter's in London, our son's in Singapore. But um, our daughter, the only thing that really terrified her, and, you know, um, she worked sort of pretty well screaming in the night, was the Railway Children, the movie. Now, you you know, there's one thing we thought, yeah, well, that's absolutely fine. That's going to be any problem. But it was the image of the trees slithering down the railway bank when the you know the kids have to stop the train, hence the railway children. But it was just that image of the trees moving. 
I mean, I, 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 she knew nothing about the Rupert Bear story. And our son was, now we went to a press show of the movie. I mean, actually Bill Nolan, William F. Nolan, had recommended this to us as something that all the family would enjoy. which was a movie called The Journey of Natty Gan, a Disney live action film. Um, <coughs> I, mean, about, I mean, I won't, I mean, to summarize very, very quickly, the, the central character, a uh, young woman, a young, well, young girl, an adolescent girl in the Depression era, has to go across America to find her father. And she befriends a timber wolf that's been kept in a, a logging camp as a kind of fighting dog. But, you know, it becomes, it's very much a Disney thing with the, you know, the, the, the animal friend who defends her. It's a, it's a li- bit less sentimental than most Disney actors. It's a bit hard you know, and uh, I mean, I would also say this is off the point in a way, but when she finally gets to her father, we, uh, you know, who she's been looking for for the entire length of the movie, this this teenage girl, he turns out to be Ray Wise. Now, those of us have seen Twin Peaks, but might feel that you know the father you find turning out to be Ray Wise is not a good omen somehow. But that's that's a different thing. But the point. <laughs> You know, she, it's in, I thought, it's a Chicago as I remember it. She finds him, you know, a shanty town outside Depression era Chicago. So she has to send the wolf away, and she sends him into the woods. Um, and you know, that's the end of the movie. That is very moving, you know. It, um, anyway, lights came up at the end of the movie, and I turned to my son, who was then five, to say that was pretty good. And he was shaking from head to foot, and absolutely inarticulate, sort of sobbing. And when he eventually kind of regained his, you know, his, 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 his speech, he said that was a sad, frightening film. And what apparently was particularly bad about it was just this image of sending somebody back into this dark wood. And that, you know, somehow, again, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of an archetype, isn't it, really? Mm, yeah. And you can find it, I mean, I, I mean, hell's teeth. I wrote a book called The Darkest Part of the Woods. <laughs> start, you know, which kind of, if you like, epitomizes it. And of course, yep. Alfred Blackwood, greatest story is, is The Willows, which again is, you know, is, is trees. And, you know, you can find, um, well, I don't know, in Lovecraft, you can certainly find uh, uh, unnaturally mobile trees in the color out of space. And so it goes on. So, you know, I think, I think the woods, you know, they're, they're, they're deep in our, in our shared subconscious, I believe. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to... Um change gears a little bit but it goes back to i don't know if it's the first thing you ever got published but i did see that there something stuck up to me with your first collection which came out 12 years before your first uh novel the doll who ate his mother but the the collection the original title looks like it wasn't the intended title is the inhabitant of the lake and less welcome tenants what stuck out to me was it's not under ramsey cable and that's uh-huh. People might not know that's not your first name. It's John, John Ramsey Campbell. Why, why'd you go with that, and why did you not stick with it? Because I, I can't find anything else under that uh, pseudonym, I guess I'll call it. I, I don't know what the proper title is. Well, no, it wasn't my original name. You know, that's, that's, uh, okay. that's the name I got from my, you know, on my birth certificate. I mean, much late. Well, you know, some decades later, I actually, you know, legally got rid of the John because basically, um, it's it sort of got in the way I thought. I mean, it's on. Well, actually, funnily enough, before that first book was published by Arkham House, you know, August Derleth was my my editor and and friend too. You know, in those days. Uh, Still, was till he died. Um, now he suggested I should I should leave the J off 
actually, and just do pure Ramsey Campbell. And I kind of, you know, well, thought about it. And it was actually Jack Chalker, the um, editor of Mirage, you know, the fanzine, who actually published an early story of mine and was, you know, a, a Lovecraft specialist. And we were corresponding, and I just mentioned this to him. And he said, oh, no, I mean, no, I, I, he said, no, Ramsey Campbell sounds like a spoiled, a spoiled Scottish duke. So, you know, keep, keep the J, he said. So, you know, I was swayed by that, and so I did. But, um, you know, after a while, I thought, well, no. And the other thing was basically, I said, we couldn't say John Ramsey Campbell because it sounded too much like John Campbell of Astounding, you know. We didn't want, obviously didn't want that confusion. Not because, it, <laughs> you know, because, you know, it would confuse people. In fact, one, I'll tell you one time, by God, where was this? This was the Worldcon in London, I think, and um, our local science fiction group, of which I was a member, took great pleasure in saying, here, John Campbell, meet John Campbell. So, you know, we, we finally came face to face briefly. Anyway, I'm way off the point now, and have I, I, I answered your question? Yes, sort of, about the J, that's right. No, but just basically, yeah, I, I felt, you know, I, I do think just Ramsey Campbell works better, you know, and so I, it's, it's gone, it's gone. It's sloughed off like a you know, an extra appendage, a tentacle. Does, uh, I'm just assuming most people don't know that that John's your first name, your birth name. Do you, mm-hmm. do many people find that surprising? Have you, have you noticed that? Has it even been brought up before? Don't think anybody, many people even know it anymore, you know. And <laughs> obviously, just, just to, 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 to kind of complicate the issue, as you, as you say, you know, the inhabitants of the lake and less welcome tenants was a misnomer because it was supposed to be other unwelcome tenants. That was what August suggested to me. But the problem was that when he when he gave the cover brief to the artist Frank Utpatel, who did the cover on the Arkham House edition, um, he 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 gave him the wrong title. I think because. His own book, Mr. George and Less Pleasant Persons, that had just come out. It was due to come out. And obviously, he, you know, he mixed the two up. And by the time we realized, well, the cover was actually printed, and obviously it would have been you know, prohibitive in those days because we weren't then electronic. Uh, so, you know, we just had to go with that. But I did restore my original title on the, the, the recent PS edition, which, you know, is, is by Ramsey Campbell. So it is mm-hmm. now, uh, you know, inhabitant and other unwelcome. And it also has all the first drafts in there as, as a sort of, you know, extras, Easter eggs, whatever you want to call them. So you worked with August Derleth, and they, I hope I pronounced his last name right. Yeah, Derleth, I believe so. Okay, yeah. so that that's pretty interesting. I'm, I, I'm a big Lovecraft fan. My wife, when uh, she I met her, when she was going to, I'm from Massachusetts, uh, about 30 minutes north of Providence, and she went to college there, and I spent a lot of time there, and I, I just love. Go- I went to uh, Swan Cemetery. I checked out the few places that have markings of Lovecraft, and um, I start. That's where I started pure, uh, starting to really dive into his mythos, mm-hmm. and that's before I get off track there. I how did you first come across August, and how did that friendship blossom? And if you want, man, like for those that are unfamiliar, if you want to just talk about him for a minute too, that'd be awesome. Yes, absolutely. Well, listen, I suppose I should just go even a bit, a little bit further back to put, you know, to give you an absolute context for this. So, I mean, I said earlier, you know, M.R. James is the guy who first really, uh, you know, gave me that intensity. Uh, 
And I started writing stories, not particularly Jamesian, but just basically bits of favourite stories that I had read all put together, like Frankenstein's monster, really, you know, well, terribly ungainly things. Now, it, it may seem very unlikely, this, to any all, all our listeners, but in the early 1960s, no Lovecraft collection had been published in paperback in Britain. You, you know, there was no such thing. One day looked in the bookshop window and there's Cry Horror, collection by H.P. Lovecraft uh, for half a crown. And, you know, I actually remember scrabbling around in my pocket thinking, my God, have I got two and six? Because if not, this book will be gone by the time I come back. I'll never see it again. I I think in those days, I was sufficiently naive to believe, you know, if you didn't get that copy of a book, you'd never see another copy of that book. So anyway, I found, yep, got half a crown, bought the book, took it home, basically skived off school the next day so I could read the book from cover to cover, which I duly did. And, you know, it had the call of clue-clue, however we want to pronounce the old guy, and the colour out of space, rats in the walls, you know, several of his greatest stories. And by the end of that day, I was convinced that not merely that Lovecraft was the greatest horror writer I'd ever read, I actually felt he was the best, the greatest writer I'd ever read. And basically, you know, before very long, I thought, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to... Mm. I want to do something along these lines. And I actually did start writing stories which were, you know, trying to add a little bit to his mythos. So it wasn't, you know, yet another story of, of Tuklu, but it was, you know, trying to pick up a little sidelong references in some of his stories and, and expand those. Um, so I wrote, oh, four or five of those. Uh, I just wrote them longhand, actually. I still do write first draft longhand, actually. Mm. Oh, wow. One of my correspondents uh, was a, a fellow member of the British Science Fiction Association uh, called Pat Kearney, who is now a, a distinguished literary historian, actually. Um, and he edited a fanzine called Gaudi, and he asked if he could see these stories. You know, I mentioned in, while we were corresponding, I mentioned I'd done some Lovecraftian stories. So he asked, could he see them? He, I sent him, well, that, such was my naivete. I, I sent him the only copy in the world, the handwritten copy, through the mail. And I, did, I don't think they registered it, actually. Uh, but yeah, it, it got there safely and it came back to me safely. And he said, could he maybe use one of these stories in his fanzine? So, okay, um, he duly did. And he suggested, why didn't I ask August Durleth if they were, you know, what he thought of them? Because Pat obviously liked them. And he felt, you know, Durleth being, well, he was, you know, really the world's authority on Lovecraft at that time. Um, you know, he would be the man to say. So I duly wrote to August and said, basically, I've written these stories. Would you like to see me and see them and, you know, just tell me what you think? And that was all I wanted. It wasn't, will you publish them? I genuinely just wanted to see if he thought they were any good. Um, and he actually said, well, look, we're going to need to see these if you have any ideas about publishing them, because, you know, we we hold the copyright on, on you know, Lovecraft's ideas. Well, that's that's always been a, a controversial issue, but, that, you know, that's what he said anyway. And yeah. I <laughs> See no reason to have a problem with it then. So I duly typed them out, sent them to him, and he eventually said, you know, he'd read them through, and, you know, there were there were a lot of problems, basically. But he said, if, you know, if you want to do the work on them and do some more stories along these lines, uh, we do think it might be a potential Arkham House book. Now, you know, 15 years old, 
that's pretty fighting talk, you know. Uh, so yeah. When I kind of picked myself up, I, I thought, yeah, I'll do this. And he did send me a long editorial, you know, list of editorial suggestions, uh, particularly for one story, and then you know, basically suggesting I should do same things to the other stories. Um, so okay, um, I duly did that. Um, wrote some more stories, and he actually published the very first of them uh, when I was sixteen. Uh, which was a story called The Church in High Street. Now, he said, when I sent him the rewrite, he, he said, no, you know, I, he still was not happy with it. But if, if I would allow him to edit it, then he would use it. Well, okay. Again, I said, said yes. And, you know, he did. And, you know, the editing he did was, was certainly necessary. I mean, I would have liked him if there had been time to say, you know, this is wrong, this is wrong. And I would have then have rewritten it along those lines. And, I think you can at times see the joint. You can you can see where it's more dearth than me. But you know what the hell? Um, it 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 works. You know, and it got me into print when I was sixteen. And so here I was alongside Robert Block and you know H. Russell Wakefield for God's sake, um, which you know pretty well uh, did for me. And then two years later, in the inhabitant did indeed come out. And you know we corresponded. For long ever after that, you know, he encouraged my work, and also was very much a sort of paternal figure. Um, and in fact, our correspondence is published by P.S. Publishing. It was a letters, letters, letters from Arkham. Or was it Letters to Arkham? God, I can't remember my own title. This is what Sinistry is like, guys. It'll you have so many books, books, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's fantastic, Brennan. I, I got questions, but go ahead, man. No, no go ahead. If you got follow ups, get it. Uh, I was going to wait till later, but Robert Block, I know for sure that because I've seen you mention that you were correspondence with him. Um, I'm I'm curious what that was like because I mean, me and Brennan, we uh, we're we do this other podcast with that I mentioned in the beginning of the show with uh, Ken McKinley. He is the he's a publisher for a publisher called uh, Silver Shamrock, and we uh, we cover the older classic horror paperbacks. And the uh, first one we did was Ghoul with Brian Keane. Second one is Robert Block's Psycho. First uh-huh. time, first time me and Brennan's ever read it was uh, the end of last year, and uh, I mean I, I'm a fan. How can't you like him? Oh so. yeah, absolutely. Now this is let me let me ask you this: see if, if this kind of resonates with you. I, I'm convinced. I don't, I don't. This may not have been intentional on Bob's part, but I sort of feel that Psycho is a kind of a riff on the, the thing on the doorstep, in the sense that it's about somebody else who is possessed by the spirit of a corpse in the cellar. Uh, in fact, you know, a woman's corpse in the cellar. I'm not ruining this for anybody. Um, and also. <laughs> not, not in the Hitchcock film, but in Bob's novel, he's got occult books in his library, which is, a, you know, a decided hint of something a bit stranger, I think, you know? Just a thought. Brennan, I feel like we kind of talked about that because we, in the in the book, and I do find it funny that you and Brian Keane have said Bob, and it seems like that's what his friends called him, which is... Oh, yes, yes, yes. Just, just as a student of the genre, I find it uh, kind of interesting. Um, but... We did notice that he has all these books on the occult, and like one of them that sticks in my mind is uh, what is it, drum skins made of human flesh? And oh, yes, yes, how, how that starts out with mother not approving, but mm-hmm. 
if we didn't say that specifically about a possession, I absolutely can see that because it's it's subjective, but you have a strong case for it. And yeah, I now that we're talking about it, yeah, I could see that, man. I mean, it may not even have been intentional. It's just one of those strange things that may have, you know, you know, lodged in his mind, if you like, because clearly it was based on Ed Gein more than on Lovecraft. Yeah. But, but you know, even so, maybe Lovecraft a bit in the background there. I, I don't know. Um, we were asking what it was like to correspond. Well, we did meet as well, actually. I mean, we 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 met at the um, at the world. The, well, the, we met several American conventions because you know, I went to quite a number of those. And we we originally met at the um, the World Fantasy, the first World Fantasy convention in in Providence in seventy um, five. In fact, and you know, he was he was just as genial and funny as, as you might imagine, actually. And it's strange, is because. In fact, have a look online um, later when you get the chance. There is a Robert Block Appreciation Facebook um, group, yeah? And I've just posted on there, because I found it just the other day. And I, I, I'm not familiar. I, I've got to uh, check that out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, if you look Robert Block on Facebook, it'll you'll, you'll, it'll take you there, I think, yeah. So I've just posted up this letter that I, from Bob that I found the other day. And it's straight, I mean, it's typical of Bob. Um because he said, you know, I mean, this was, uh, I, I'd, I'd obviously said in my letter to him uh, that I'd had the proofs of his, well, typical of Bob, what he calls his, his unauthorized autobiography, right? You know, once around the block. And so <laughs> Tor had said to, sent me and some other people, um, you know, page proofs for a quote. And of course, I, I certainly gave him a quote. And, um, and he said that's good because the only other person I've had a quote from is Saddam Hussein. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I don't. I didn't realize. Yeah. Yeah. Ramsey, you keep apologizing for going off the point, but don't yeah. ever do that. We love that. Oh, you yeah. know, Fair less enough. questions we have to ask, the more we get oh, to hear oh, from oh, you. We're happy. Oh, um, oh, okay. Let, let me let me let me just follow up on something then here for a moment because um, you know, I was just saying about the first World Fantasy Convention. And, you know, it's strange because my, my, my friend John Probert was saying this to me quite recently that, you know, well, I mean, I sort of feel that I'm, I, what I hope to be is sort of a, you know, a link in the chain that is our field, you know, or a sort of, you know, a stage of it, you know, somebody who's, you know, kind of taken from what came before and maybe passed on a little to people who come after, you know. But the, the, what John was specifically saying was that I'm kind of, which is unnerving me, I'm one of the last links to that old, that classic generation of pulp writers. Because, you know, Bob, not only did Bob become a friend of mine, but I mean, Manny Wade Wellman, who I also met at that convention, Frank Belt that long. I mean, Frank was, well, you know, he was, he was, he was a likable guy. But I'll tell you what, um, if you imagine... Stumpy in Rio Bravo, you know the Walter, Walter Brennan character in Rio Bravo, uh, with a with a with a Brooklyn accent. You've got a pretty fair sense of what Frank was like. In fact, even to look at actually, it's kind of strange. And oh God, who else did I meet back then? Um, oh, Jay Vernon Shea and um, Lord Hugh B. Cave, you know. And so I you know I, all these people became friends. Because we kept meeting at, at at World Fantasy conventions, and, the, and there was that whole well generation of which I'm part. And you know, the sad thing is, also these guys, you know, Charlie Grant, Dennis Etchison, Carl Wagner, and 
I'm the only one left, really. Um, I mean, I had a. <laughs> this is. I mean, I don't want to get too morbid about this, but by God, there's, there's a book called Arkham's Masters of Horror, which Peter Ruber edited why, why way back now, uh, which was you know, basically stories from you know the surviving Arkham House writers, and um, I recently had a Spanish translation of that. And the publishers have put in a note saying, to the last living contributor. Oh, no. I've got a lot lot of stuff to to hold up there, I suppose. I don't know. That's, that's, uh, yeah, I don't know how that would feel. I'm in my 30s, but I can't imagine that. Uh, I just wanted, sorry, go ahead, Ramsey. You go on, go on. You brought up one thing, and uh, we talked about this a little bit, and I just checked out, the, I had to Google it, I checked out the dates uh, for Ed Gein when he was actually brought to trial, which was in, uh, I think it said 57, give or take. Uh, Bob's book came out in 59, first edition came out in 1959, and um, I, I don't know, I could be wrong, purely guessing, but it seems like he was the first one to take... Uh, inspiration from a serial killer that exploded at least through the nation at the time and wrote about it and wrote created his own monster because I know that Ed Gein was responsible for many fictional monsters but three of the massive ones are uh, Norman Bates from Psycho uh, Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre and uh, Buffalo Bill from The Silence of the Lambs so it's needless to say he's one of the most uh for lack of a better dreary word or phrase, is uh, he's the most inspiring serial killer. <laughs> yes, yes, I think that's true. There's also a very good movie called Deranged with uh, Roberts Blossom as pretty well, obviously, Ed Gein, you know, and, and yeah. in some ways closer, I suppose, to to how, how Gein behaved. I, I got to check that out, too. Wow. Um, Brennan, go ahead, buddy. You seem like you had a good question. Uh, you know, I was going to jump in. So I'm glad you brought Block back up. I was going to jump in a while ago and about the whole occult book thing. The one conclusion that we all came to when we were, you know, discussing that book for upwards of two hours was there's just no fat in it. It's it's mm, it's no. lean, it's mean, and every <laughs> choice is intentional. So, yeah. I mean, to me, the that when, when the rest of the book could be shelved as like psychological thriller the inclusion of those books has to be intentional. And I, I would assume that there's, I don't know whether you count it as an Easter egg or a hint to bigger things. Um, yeah. Th- th- there's reason to bring that detail up. And Ramsey, Ramsey said something too, which I, I laughed and I didn't want to interrupt earlier. You, I, I think you have apologized for maybe a spoiler in that book, but <laughs> even if you don't like horror, man, you, you know that the mom's dead and he's like dressing. Well, <laughs> You'd think so, wouldn't you, by now? Yeah, I, I, I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I don't know, because, I mean, um, I, I mean, I just sort of tried, the other, you know, so quite recently I was trying to find out how many people knew knew the, the point of uh, Murder on the Orient Express, you know, the Agatha Christie novel. And a lot of people don't, and if you don't, we mustn't spoil it for those who don't. True. But, you know, Agatha Christie had this, I mean, she was brilliant at coming up with, you know, something you could only use once, but, you know, she that was one, and, you know, Roger Ackroyd is another, and there are others which I won't even talk about, but, you know, I've been rereading her quite recently, and in fact, I did a, I recently did a novella, which was kind of my, if you like, my sort of response to Agatha Christie, um, 
which is going to come out from PS Publishing pretty soon. There's going to be a collection of of novellas actually, uh, but this is this is a new one out of out of the five. This is all this is one that's new called the Village Killings. And because um, the thing was this, you see, I you know this thing about cozy crime and people tend to 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 treat Agatha Christie as a kind of kind of cosy writer, you know, in the sense, in one sense, obviously, that's true, because, you know, at the end, you know, the, everything is neatly tied up, and usually the, the, you know, the villain is turned over to the law, you know, brought to some kind of a you know, justice, <clears throat> but it just kind of occurred to me that, although that's true, when you're reading an Agatha Christie, particularly if you, you know, if you've read a few and you know the kind of thing to expect, though you really don't know what to expect, but you know the way her mind works. So you're reading those books and, you know, you're kind of scrutinising, you know, the most innocent actions or the most innocent lines of dialogue in case of something hidden behind them. Now, that's pretty damn close to paranoid schizophrenia, it seems to be. And that was kind of where I went with this story, but more than that, you'll have to wait and see when it's published. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I love that idea that an author kind of builds that expectation where you have to read their work with a fine tooth comb. Mm. Um, and, you know, speaking of that, you know, of an author developing their own style on that front, one of the big things is I, you know, I, admittedly, I have not read a gigantic chunk of your back catalog. I'm relatively new to you as an author, um, and that's going to be true of a lot of, you know, non Stephen King horror people. I'm embarrassed to say it took me into my early 30s to figure out, oh my gosh, there's more than uh, what what Barnes and Noble you know, stocks at the front of the store to the uh, horror genre. But one thing I picked up right away and, you know, anybody I talked with says, yeah, of course, is your ability to kind of build an atmosphere of dread. Now, I wonder when you started writing, is that something that was intentional or is it just something that automatically gets injected in every story that you do? Is that just is that just you? Because <laughs> you seem perfectly pleasant on the surface. <laughs> oh yes, yes. Well, it's all a facade. Listen, when I take this mask off, you're going to see something very dreadful, but I won't do it just yet. Um, no, I, I guess it's a bit of both, you know, because it, it was what I most admired about. Well, one of the things I most admired about James M R James, and certainly about Lovecraft, perhaps above all, you know, just the way that everything in the story in his best work is geared toward building that sense of, you know, dread and awe, terror. And and for me, nobody did it better. In some ways, for me, still nobody does it better. I mean, there are you know other writers who do it extraordinarily well. Um, just you know, while I'm you know, shooting out ideas in all directions. Uh, if you don't know Adam Neville, I, I, I strongly recommend him, a countryman of mine. And there's um, one of his novels, No no One Gets Out Alive, has um, an extended scene in a, a house just going from room to room, which is, it's very much like a nightmare that's never going to end. And just when you think it has, no, there's the next room, you know, I'll say no more than that. Um, but no, I think it, it, it comes down to the selection of language and the structure, I think. And again, you know, that's absolutely rooted in, in Lovecraft for me. Um, and I suppose it is what I try to do, but I suppose it's become kind of instinctive for me now. But, you know, I'm conscious of that sort of form of the horror story where, you know, you, you, you use kind of hints and allusions that very gradually gather, you know, a sense of, of what is there. 
Um, it's always the kind of story I've most loved anyway. I mean, I'm a, for, you know, as a random example, in cinema, I'm a, a great admirer of the Blair Witch Project, which I actually think is more like a Lovecraft story in some ways than any other film I know, more, more so in some ways than the actual, you know, official Lovecraft adaptations. You know, I think it has so many of those, the qualities, you know, that, that sort of, you know, again, the gathering of little hints and allusions and this sort of gathering dread and nothing quite being explained either not within the film itself <clears throat> and it certainly did you know did what it did what it was supposed to do for me um and i guess it's but as i say for me by now as a writer you know it is the way that i i kind of develop a story it's how it develops in my in my mind and i suppose it's um you know i'm i suppose i'm trying to write what i like to read yeah now i I'm not surprised at all to hear you say that a big part of it is just making sure, kind of pouring over and making sure you choose the right word. Uh, yeah. Earlier when we were talking, you mentioned that movie, the, oh, I didn't write that part down, but you you mentioned a movie and you were talking about the uh, trees. The Relic or Deranged, those are the two that I got that he mentioned. No, it was a third one, but you were mentioning oh. the trees slithering down the tracks. Oh, I'm sorry, that, and, was, the, that was the Railway Children, yeah, the Jenny yes. Teddy yep. film. Yeah, yeah. And that stuck out to me because there's so many ways to say the trees moving down the tracks, but choosing the word slithering just in the moment there um, <laughs> is what what a vivid picture it paints. What a vivid and unsettling picture it paints. <laughs> yeah, and, you see, that is how my mind works. That is how I see the world. I suppose you might even say that. So yeah, it's all it's all you know. Just this is what it's like to be me all the time, guys. You just get to read it. <laughs> So with that in mind, when you when you write, and maybe this has changed over your career, but when you write, um, are you somebody who pours out the first draft and you go back and decide there's a better word later? Or do you spend a lot of times working to get one portion right? Or is it somewhere in the middle? It'll be in the middle. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I uh, as I said, I think earlier, you know, I write, I write longhand. So that tends to be kind of relatively fluent process. Um, what comes to the rewrite, though, you know, yes, um, you know, it is a matter of, 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 you know, testing every word, really, every sentence, and seeing if I can improve. And I have to say, for me, actually, rewriting is one of the great, the great pleasures of writing. I mean, it's all, it, a lot of it's good fun, actually, in its way, but rewriting particularly, increasingly so, is something I very much enjoy. But... Now I think about it, I'm just pondering your question. When I think about it, when I have, there's probably particularly true in a novel, you know, when I've got a chapter that is basically a kind of, you know, set piece, a scene where you, you, you are building up the, the, that real sense of, of the uncanny or of, of dread, I do take more time over that. And I am, yes, I, I think I am being more careful about choosing my words as far as I possibly can. And those do tend to take longer, not in a bad way, but even the first draft take longer to write. Um, so yes, I, I am I, I I I can't I don't want to take those too fast and I and I can't. So yeah, there, there's a bit of that too. Very cool. Um I think we should start talking about the searching dead. For yeah. audio listeners, I'm lifting up the book and showing it. It's uh, there it is. There it is. Now, is the term reissued? Is that the proper 
terminology for this? Well, there was a limited edition from PS Publishing, but this is the first mass market, and you know, mass market in Britain and America simultaneously, and simultaneous ebook and and uh, audiobook. So you know, the guys at Flame Tree know what they're doing. I think. Absolutely. Before we go into that real quick, uh, we are go- going to give away one paperback version of Ramsey Campbell's The Searching Dead, the first of three books. Um, stay tuned. Follow our Twitter. It is uh, dead underscore headspace for all the details. So, Brennan, you want to lead the way with this uh, with this book or would you like me to, sir? Well, I mean, let's jump in, Ramsey, and just have you give us kind of the uh, elevator pitch. Give us the shorthand version of what readers can expect. Let's say just in the first book in this trilogy. Okay. Well, it's set in the. uh, I suppose I I probably should give you a bit of a sense of the trilogy. Actually, I mean, it's about three friends, and and in in the in the Searching Dead, they're at school in the 1950s in Liverpool. We're going to follow them throughout the course of the three books. Uh, they'll grow up, and you know they'll they'll hit my age by the by the end of the trilogy. Actually, because it it spans um, nearly seventy years. The whole thing. Now, mm-hmm. in the first one, um, Dominic, the central character, the the, the narrator, in fact, um, discovers that a teacher at his school, uh, which he, who is is an ostensibly a, a Catholic Christian Brothers type of school grammar school. In England, a grammar school is a, a high school, you understand, um, uh, is involved in the occult, as, as, as it transpires, is, is behind uh, a cult, which is located in a derelict, or at least deconsecrated church, in the middle of the sort of blitzed uh, district of Liverpool, which is what a lot of Liverpool was like in the 50s. You know, the, these houses have been bombed and were left there derelict for decades, actually. Um, the cult uh, the, the, is, is basically purports to put you in touch with your long lost or recently lost relatives. You know, it's a, a kind of spiritualist setup. But it becomes apparent that uh, the, the, the guy behind it um, is using the dead, the recently dead, uh, as a kind of proxy to venture into places he doesn't dare to go. So we're getting very much into the, you know, the area of cosmic horror. Um, and basically, these three friends, uh, Dominic, Jim and Bobby, Roberta, uh, are up against him, the, the, uh, the, the, the founder of the cult, and, and, and others too. Um, and it becomes increasingly an issue of, you know, how deep do they get in and what do they call upon themselves while they do it? Um, the other two books, uh, as you'll, I'm sure, appreciate, uh, the thing has not gone away. On the contrary, it gets bigger with that succeeding volume. Um, so it's very much my... What it basically is, actually, is me going back to my earliest published ideas, you know, the, the inhabitant, basically... Uh, more specifically, a story in there called "The Render of the Veils," and try. I be. I basically felt, you know, I'd not done these ideas justice when I was sixteen. Well, you know, I didn't have the capability. I really felt that they, you know, there was more that could be done with them, and I wanted basically to be a bit more worthy of Lovecraft and and like, you know the whole tradition of cosmic terror than I think I had been in that first book, and that's fundamentally why I wrote the. Trilogy. That and that my old friend Peter Crowther, Pete Crowther of PS Publishing, had kind of gently said to me, or gently 
insisted to me over the years that, you know, there ought to be a horror trilogy. Well, actually, you know, Jeff Van Der Meer got there first with, you know, with, with, the, with The Reach, which is, you know, a great trilogy of his. So I, I'm trailing along behind, but I think I've done my own thing. So, um, I, I, you know, it, it is one of the pieces of mine that at the moment I'm quite happy with. I'm quite fond, fond of this trilogy. So The Searching Dead will introduce you to the characters in, in the 1950s. And believe me, that's what Liverpool was really like back then as well. Hmm. You know, we had Don uh, Doria on last week, and uh, we talked a little bit about uh, you and The Searching Dead, and he said basically... You know, it was not um, available like he would have liked it, and just so happens he can make that happen. So uh-huh. I'm glad that he did, and uh, he did mention how there's a lot of Ramsey. To, we'll ask that specific question later on, unless you want to answer it now. Um, that there's a lot of Ramsey Campbell on the way this year in the foreseeable future. That makes me happy as a horror fan because I mean, I I've recently I discovered you in the early aughts uh but it wasn't through your books it was before let's see before i discovered this documentary not in there i apologize not in the early aughts whatever the teens are the 20 teens are um but the documentary came out in the early aughts it is lovecraft fear of the unknown and um yeah yeah i thought you had a lot of interesting things to say uh, I, I kind of I'm jumping around here, but I'm curious how that project came about. You know, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, the guys introduced, you know, it, it approached me and a lot of other people, you know, to, because they were doing a documentary on 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 Lovecraft. You know, just as more recently, there's been a documentary about Carl Edward Wagner that I've been in, you know, the Last Wolf. But I think generally speaking, it's just that these folk, you know, decide we need to do a documentary about this author and. We're going to approach the people who we think would have something good or interesting to say about them. And uh, that, that's, that's I, I, I genuinely, I'm afraid, uh, I can't remember now how I was approached or when, but it all came together pretty well, I think. That was a really good way to get introduced uh, to you and a bunch of other people. One of those people who is uh, blurbed on, he did a blurb for, I don't know if it was specifically for The Searching Dead, but Guillermo del Toro wrote an absolute master of modern horror. Uh, Hard to argue that from him or about you. So was that quote, was that blurb for this book? Or was it just an older one in general? No, that that was Guillermo on Twitter. He just said that on Twitter off the you know, off the top of his head one day. But now, funnily enough, there's there's a there's an anecdote I got to tell you now, uh, you, you which I don't think I've told before. Um, this was way back around around the turn of the century, actually. And Jenny and I, um, I think maybe I don't. The family probably I don't. Maybe we'd all been away. On holiday, it doesn't really matter. We 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 go to Greece. It, well, not 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 right now. We don't. Sadly, not on the present circumstances. But you know, generally speaking, we go to Greece once a year for a holiday. And um, came back, and there were you know lots of messages on the answer phone. And um, you know they were mostly kind of you know scammy bloody messages saying you know you know we, you've won a million dollars and just give us your bank details and you know and your passport and we'll we'll pay you all this garbage. Um, but then there was one message saying hello, uh, Mr. Campbell, uh, this is Geronimo del Toro calling from Mexico. 
what? <laughs> I thought, yeah, oh, right, yeah. So who, which one of my friends is putting me on here, you know? And then he, but he went on and he said, basically, I want to I want to make this movie out of a story of yours. And um, it's going to be part of a, uh, I think it was, maybe it was New Realm, I forget. What it fundamentally was going to be was a, um, a, a follow-up to the Twilight Zone movie, uh, whereas that was, you know, for four stories all based on the Twilight Zone by four different directors. This is going to be a movie by four different directors, but based on short stories which are chosen by them, you know, not particularly from the Rod Serling. And what he wanted to do was a story called Down There. I mean, you'll appreciate that it wasn't a hoax call at all. When I rang the number, no, that's Gildermo. And in fact, we met in, we met in Madrid a few years later uh, when... Jaume Balaguerdo had made the film of my novel, The Nameless, Los Sin Nombre. Um, and I was over there helping them promote that movie. And Delomo actually came over because he wanted to get, you know, just us to, to meet, you know. So we, we all hung out and had a great time. But sadly, the, 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 the deal for this movie, they did pay the option, but in fact, I think they may even have bought the story uh, for a while. But the, the deal fell through, you know. It's sadly, the movie never got made. However... Dilemma is now producing a Netflix series and he's bought the story again. So maybe we'll see it after all. So he, he lives only to make this story of mine. There you go. I hope so, man. It's a nice happy ending there. I'd or, say, you know, oh, on, yeah. on its way to being a happy ending, at least. <laughs> well, let's hope he does out in the mountains of madness as well, though, you know. We're all looking forward to that. We just hope he I have a feeling he's got some, you know, come hell or high water, he's gonna make that movie happen yeah, at yeah. some point. He is is too, you know, emotionally invested in it to not eventually make that happen. And too big of a name, honestly. Yeah, yeah. If he wants to make that. Seriously, you, can... <laughs> you would hope. You would hope. Mind we sort of did make the shadow over Innsmouth, I think, as as the shape of water. So that's a that's a kind of a start, you know. He just I had mean, to he... trick the. Uh, he had to trick Hollywood into letting him yeah. do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, Ramsey, one of my favorite aspects of The Searching Dead, and um, I, I've been trying to figure out a way to put it into words, and I, I'm not sure I've succeeded, but the best way I can think to put it is it's subtle coming of age. You know, so, mu so many horror coming of age stories uh, kind of take the Stephen King in It approach. They They create an authentic environment by, you know, having the kids having a, a group of like 13 year olds talk like 13 year olds actually do, which is very different than mm. is shown on TV. Uh, whereas yours is very much more subdued, but because of that uh, atmosphere of the fifties and the Catholic school and the, um, the uh, a whole community that surrounds it, it, it feels very authentic. It fits very nicely. And, you know, one of the details I really loved and I don't think this is a spoiler. If you consider it so, we can take it out. But um, is at the, towards the beginning of the story, it, the kids really watch their language. You know, they 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 they're upstanding members of the community. They would never be caught, you know, <laughs> uttering a curse word. And then as it goes, very subtly sprinkled in, you know, they they start say, you know calling people bastards behind their back. They say, that's a word we use now. And, and I love that. It's that, that kind of coming of age, uh, finding your own sense of, I don't know if maturity is the right word. Um, but no, I'm curious. 
you you said this takes place in 1950s Liverpool, and there really are schools like that. Oh, yeah. How much of the characters are drawn from real life experience? That's interesting because actually a lot of people have taken this. Not this is not a bad thing, but a lot of people take this as being more or directly autobiographical than it really is. Um, I mean, yeah, I went to a school like that, although it was it was rather more vicious than the one in the in the book because that's not what the book is about. So you know that wasn't really something I. I mean, I, I, I elsewhere there's a story of mine called The Interloper, an early short story, which is a lot closer to the kind of you know ghastly Catholic high school that I really went to. Um, but no, the, the characters they're not really based on anybody in particular. I mean, Dominic isn't really me, but you know some of the things he goes through. I went through for sure, um, but I mean, there's no real equivalent of Bobby in in my early life, uh, and well, Jim, you know, is a. I mean, he's kind of a conglomerate of best friends. So I suppose we could say that, but because it was an all male school, an all boys school, uh, I didn't really have girlfriends at that age at all to speak of. So you know, Bobby comes out of well, out of I suppose out of later people, but she's nobody. She's nobody specific. Uh, equally. You know, Christian Noble isn't anyone specific. And the strange thing, I remember this was one thing that really did strike me in the writing of the book. Of that early chapter where you get a page or a page and a half or so, where you just get all the members of staff, little sketches of them, you know, about of, of all the teachers at that school. They all came out of my head just one morning. Never met any of them. Never met anybody like them. Apart actually from the drunken Latin master, he's kind of out of out of real life. Yeah, but he's the only one. The others just they they were there somehow. You know, one minute they weren't there, the next minute they were somehow up there in my subconscious, waiting to you know to come out on the page. And by the end of the morning, there they all were, and I was amazed myself. You know, didn't quite know where they'd come from. So that's how it works for me. Now that that's interesting because I, I I could have you know I, I can easily buy that the kids are amalgamations, not necessarily oh this is me in nineteen fifties Liverpool, but uh, for for some reason it's the the teachers. I would think if you had gone to a school and you said your your version was your real life version was more harsh, but yeah. um, that you'd be pulling those teachers from that experience. Yes, no. Now I, I'm I'm curious the. The the way the community kind of rallies around the atmosphere of the school was that common that you know any outsider to that faith was really kind of castigated from the community like that. Yes, it was quite a lot of that. Yes, I mean I I think there were worse places actually. There were there were places where you know if you'd not gone to church on Sunday they 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 know you know and by God you'd know. On Monday morning, I don't, it wasn't quite that bad the place I went to. And to be fair, you know, there were there were some very reasonable guys, both among the the actual monks and some of the lay staff as well. I mean, by far the best teacher I ever had was an English teacher, sadly no longer with us, called Ray Thomas. He was the my my last English master actually. Um, I mean, not mine personally, but you know, of of my of the class I was in, and he was. I don't know anybody who was better at just conveying his love of the language and of and of literature. So you know, even to a kind of class full of you know, fifteen, sixteen year olds, he was he was managing to make 
you know, Shakespeare live and Matthew Arnold, for God's sake, live, which is no easy task, believe me, I can't imagine it would be. Although even going back, I mean, the earlier, I mean, the, there was a guy called Brother Kelly, who was in my first year at that school, and he, he encouraged me, well, he got me to read uh, my horror stories to the class. I mean, I, I, doubt, I doubt that we would get away with that now. A couple of them were pretty gruesome, you know, even the stuff I was writing when I was 11. In fact, in some ways, the stuff I was writing when I was 11, probably more gruesome than the stuff I write now. But actually, it was, it was the prose that was gruesome in the wrong sense. Yeah. Now, I, I you, you said that the teachers, for the most part, came out of your head, but mm-hmm. the... And, and I'm spacing on the name, but, you know, the teacher that kind of in a sly manner encourages Dominic's writing, even though, uh, you know, the headmaster is not super on board with that. I almost yeah. think it's fair to say, oh, it, that doesn't mean that that's, you know, Brother Thomas. That's mm-hmm. I, I feel like every school has that teacher, um, yeah. the one that is willing to buck authority a little bit in the interest of allowing you know, a kid to develop and not necessarily follow the one narrow straight path that society tries to put you on. Yeah, that's, I'm sure, or at least we'd hope that was the case, wouldn't we, I think, yeah. And yeah, I think you are right. I think mostly, most of there is one, or maybe more than one, you know. Yeah, I, and, and I love the way that, you know, the whole, I, I don't know, I can't think of a better word than antagonism. Um, kind of gets set up and I won't go too far with this because the book comes out on February 16th and we want people to uh, grab that flame tree version, the uh, (laughs) out in paperback, hardcover and ebook. Um, But the way that it starts out as a little bit of a kinship and then that uh, between Christian noble and the, the kids uh, or, or at least Dominic um, Mm. and the rift develops from there and, just the way that's explored, you know, through various scenes. I know one that I have one coming to mind with, uh, I'll just say a creepy child. Um, uh-huh. And yeah. it, I, I just thought it, it happened very naturally over the course of 240 some odd, odd pages. You're going to see a lot more of her in the second and third volumes. I have to tell you, but of course you'll have grown up by then. Oh, and no. <laughs> uh, Don, Don mentioned that the second one, uh, let's see, actually, Born to the Dark comes out at the end of this year? Is that uh, right? I think it's October, is it? I think it's October. Uh, okay, yeah, okay. Octo- oh, yeah, that comes out in October, and you have a original coming out at the end of the year. Do I have that right? I bl- uh, June, oh, no, right? Uh, the, well, now the third volume is going to be, I think, I think the third is... Next April, so I'm going to have to wait a little while. But no, the, the original novel, the new novel, that is you know, previously unpublished, but that, that's June. That's actually June, a uh, book called Somebody's Voice. Okay, my apologies. Oh, no, no, not at all. Don't worry. Just going to put this out there. I know I can speak for Brennan on this. Is uh, You are by far the most polite person I've ever talked to on Twitter and in person. <laughs> <laughs> okay. there is, uh, there's one other person, a friend of mine, a writer from England, um, I don't know if you've heard of him, but Lex uh, Lex H. Jones, he wrote this book, a children's uh, picture book called um, The Old One in the Sea. And then there's... <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Another author named oh, Laura Morrow made these. It's okay. Cthulhu and uh, young Howard Phillips. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, 
I gotta tell you, it's the only story I read where Lovecraft's this cute, adorable monster, and uh, I think you'd like it. I didn't. I, that kind of came out of nowhere, but I don't know. I just you love Lovecraft. I think me. I I really love how he creates the atmosphere too. Um, yeah. I, I meant to mention that earlier. That's why I think it's coming out of me. But it it's fascinating to me. You got and not just him, but so many other authors or creators. But you got this one author that that's pretty much all he was maybe i'm wrong i I don't i've never read his letters but that's pretty much all he was good at and he didn't have a great childhood so i'm not blame i'm not blaming him for that obviously but he affects so many people years down the line and you were talking about someone being the last link in the chain i think you do that quite well to be honest because everyone i've talked about with you i feel feel like i've talked to quite a few people about you very good things to say as a writer and a person. So that's my, uh, I guess you can call it fanboy. I keep doing that on episodes, but <laughs> I can't help it. I can't help it. I talked to so many awesome authors. Huh? Last night was Jorah Lansdale. Tonight's you. Well, Gabino and uh, Sean and CN2, they're great. But that's, sorry, that came out of nowhere, man. I just had to say that. <laughs> Thank you very much. You bet. You bet. Do you, um, do you attribute the kind of humbleness that you have and I'm not trying to sound like I'm kissing your ass now but do you attribute the uh, humbleness that you have for anyone that came before you that maybe taught you remember your roots because I, I mean my personally my father always said no matter where you end up in life you gotta remember where you came from and I, I didn't come from a poor family but I mean I, I'd like to think that and I've seen it with a lot of successful people that are good people that they seem to do that. And you seem to do it too. But I'm, I'm curious if that was a, a lesson you were taught at a young age. No, I don't think so. No, I think I think what it more probably is was actually working with August Earls, you know. But, you know, he was, he, you know, he helped me you know, in all, any number of ways, not just as a writer, actually, because, you know, he did kind of give me, you know, life advice, because my, my father was not around at all, you know, I didn't didn't see him, it was, he was around, he was in the same house, I just didn't see him face to face, he was you know, on the other side of the door for like 20, 20 some years of my life, so that was a kind of strange situation in itself, and so Durth became a kind of surrogate father, you know, he gave me the kind of fatherly advice you might you might expect that you know when you're an adolescent but it was also i think that you know he he sort of passed on his knowledge as a writer and editor if you like to me and you know i've kind of tried to help other writers you know in the same way over the well over you know over like a lot of my life really and it's odd because actually looking back you know taking it back another step that exactly what happened with lovecraft to august you know lovecraft was 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 Durless kind of mentor uh, as as a correspondent? They never actually met. Well, mind you, sadly, I never met August either. I mean, by the time I got to uh, Sork City, uh, which is in '75, you know, um, unfortunately, uh, you know, he was he died some years ago. Oh, incidentally, I know this is this is this is kind of um, you know shoehorning it in when I should have said this an hour ago. But of course, the guy I completely forgot and one of the greatest people I met uh, in Providence at that first World Fantasy Convention was Fritz Leiber, you know, a tremendous writer. And I had, I mean, I and many others, well, probably everybody was there, you know, had the unique pleasure of hearing Fritz read. The Haunts of the Dark allowed at midnight in in uh, in uh, at the convention. Um, 
And in fact, gosh, now here's an anecdote that the next year was the, the, the World Fantasy Convention was in New York. And in fact, Jenny, my wife, that was the first one she went to because you know, she, was a, she was a teacher, but she managed to get time off for that one before we had the kids. And then after that, for a while, you know, I had to go on my own. And then, you know, subsequently, of course, we, we, get, we always go together. But anyway, I'm getting off the point. The point was that in, in New York, um, Fritz was one of the guests of honor, and I was also a guest. And um, Jack Sullivan, the was among other things, a, 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 a you know a great authority on the on on, on supernatural horror. He edited the the Penguin Encyclopedia of Horror and the Supernatural. And I, I generally used to stay with Jack uh, on the Upper West Side in New York whenever I was over, and he would get me to read to his friends, you know. And actually, it was quite a decent bunch of friends with like Ted Klein and Gahan Wilson and. Uh, Tom Dish and so forth, and Kirby McCauley, of course. Um, but this particular time, um, you know, I, I suggested to Fritz, uh, would he like to come over and do a reading? And uh, so we did, we did a reading together at Jack's, and that was a, a memorable mm. believe me. And Fritz did um, a Little Old Miss Macbeth, that was his story. Was oh, very strange, all. <laughs> you know, only, only Fritz could have written that story. Um, you know, a, a strange apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic vision like nobody else's. So that was that was a great evening. So I'm just you know throwing that out there. That's yeah, that sounds really fun. It. I was supposed to go to conventions for the first time last year, but coronavirus killed that. So I want to hear you. Want to hear y'all talking, uh, author? That was a real pity, not because of the coronavirus, but you know we could have met it because we were you know Providence a couple of years ago. But when when the StokerCon was there, um, so suddenly you didn't. Obviously, you didn't make it. Pity though. Yeah. Right? Um, but what what year was that? Do you remember? Oh, no, I was in them. It's like around twenty fifteen, something like that, maybe. I'm. <laughs> so that's the year I moved from New England to uh, my oh. wife's home state of New Jersey. But oh. yeah, I I wish I was more so a part of the horror community then because I um. I didn't really start to know about conventions until like two years ago. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Uh, I, I lost track of what my uh, question or point of all this was. <laughs> well, you, you know what? You you were talking about you know humble roots and stuff like that, and you know the one thing I would throw in there is it seems to me like any names that stick in this genre and in this industry for decades or more, uh, they all have that mentality that you learned uh and you were helped out by the people who came before you and you owe it to the next generation to give as well um to to not just kind of cut that link in the chain to use the metaphor we've been kind of throwing out there um to keep giving back to the community and inspire and help out the uh the next generation of writers really sure sure no i mean just right now for instance i'm reading um the fisherman john langan and that's quite something for sure. So yeah, he's nice. He's a nice guy. I wanted to ask you real quick, and maybe I'm just dense. If you're okay with talking about what exactly you meant, you saw, you only heard your father through the other side of the door. I don't even know what that means. Is that ah well okay? I mean, um, you, you 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 can read a great deal about this in my. I will tell you, but you know, if you want to know more about the stuff, because clearly I'm going to have to summarize it. Uh, but, you know, in my non-fiction book, uh, Ramsey Campbell, probably, yet another PS book, 
there's a long, long autobiographical essay in that, which will tell you a lot more than I'll have time to do now. But in, 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 to, to kind of, you know, cut it down to the, to the basics, um, my, my, my parents were estranged when I was very young, like I think mm. three years old, uh, for a whole variety of different reasons. And basically, I had to. It was, it was kind of put to me that I got to make the choice between my mother or my father. It was as simple as that. You know, do you oh want to go out with your father or or not? And because I'd seen this kind of ghastly physical row erupt, you know, I mean, I thought maybe probably some of the back of my mind was, you know, I'd caused this. So, you know, I said, well, no, 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 I don't want to go anymore. And that was that was the end of my relationship with my father. So for the next, like, well, I mean, I, 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 let me see. I was I. Uh, didn't move out of the house till till Jenny and I met. So this would have been I was like um, oh, 24 when I moved out. So up to that point, um, you know, my father was just this presence in the house. And anyway, you, you, you kind of heard him on, you know, going upstairs at night or coming down in the morning. But I never saw him or virtually never saw him. There were maybe half a dozen occasions when, you know, he and my mother came face to face. But even then, he wasn't really you know, coming for me, yeah. but he used to leave presents around the house on my birthday or Christmas, you know, um, which was kind of strange. Um, books, actually, books, inevitably, in fact, yeah. Um, but uh, he, so he became this sort of monstrous figure. And this is exacerbated by the fact that, uh, sadly, my mother was, as far, I'm aware, as far as I am aware, undiagnosed for, until nearly the end of her life. But she was a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, increasingly so as time wore on. But, you know, even early on, my father became this sort of monstrous figure who was, you know, quite capable of poisoning us in the night, you know, if we, if we, if we, uh, we didn't, you know, watch what we drank or ate, you know, this kind of a thing. Um, and so you can imagine that, you know, this, this kind of had some shaping effect on possibly the kind of thing that I write, you know. I'm not saying, I mean, it often comes up, I mean, Doug Winter, uh, used to say or did say, you know, in, uh, in in an interview that, you know, he felt that I was, of all the people he'd met in the field, that I was the guy who was most kind of born to write what I write, you know, or my, my kind of my background and upbringing kind of led there. I mean, the, the truth, I mean, I've often thought about that, I've wondered about that. I think the truth is I don't know, you know, because it's like saying, you know, if I weren't who I am, who would I be, you know? <laughs> and I still think I would have had the love of the field and that would have led to me writing in it. But maybe the kind of psychological preoccupations of a lot of my stories, maybe that comes out of there. I wouldn't. That seems likely, I think, yeah. Sure. I, I mean, I heard this interview, or watched this interview with Stephen King where he talked about how his mother told him that he saw, for those that have heard it, they saw um, when he was a child, he came home all shaken up, and uh, I believe he saw his friend get hit by a train or killed by a train yeah, and that's right. yeah what wasn't he he's not sure why he loves horror for the same reason none of us know but could make a case maybe that kind of started something and but, of course, i was going to say of course clive barker when he was about that age um you know was taken to see it was an, an aeronautics exhibition of some sort you know a display and i think i'm right to say that someone fell out of a plane so this was, you know, he saw a man fall to his death when he was about three or four years old, Clive. And again, clearly that, you know, it's going to be a shaping experience, I think. Although I think he sees it as a, as a kind of Prometheus image almost, you know, the guy who falls in the sky. 
<laughs> the kind of thing that Clive writes, you know? That I haven't even thought of it. That's fair. Uh, and then I think, I can't speak for Brian, but for myself, I I don't think I've ever seen anyone, I know I haven't seen anyone dead except for at funerals. Yeah. yeah. Nothing's really shaped me like that. Like, I saw the... <laughs> I saw the uh, Stephen King adaptation of, of it in 1990, and I was one at the time, and I know that, that yeah. gave me nightmares, but... Well, yeah, that would do it, yeah. <laughs> and my, my mother told me when I was a, like a three-year-old, I used to cry that there was a witch in my room, which still creeps me mm-hmm. out, because I don't want to really uh, evaluate the psychology of that, uh, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I think it's just in us. Yes, yes. But I think, I think like Lovecraft said, it's in all of us, man. Like fear is like the most primal emotion that we have. Some, yeah. but we want to explore it. Um, Brendan, why don't you take over, sir? Yeah, you know what? Go, just going off that, and that I'm gonna steal somebody's words, and I want to say it was John F. D. Taff. Is you know he says that if you ask somebody off the street, they'll say the two most primal emotions are love and hate, and it's not hate at all; it's fear. Any mm. any time that you have hate it's typically you can you can dive deeper and base that hate off fear you can trace it back to fear and i Mm. I would definitely agree with that um he's a lot smarter than i am but he put it well (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah um hmm. can we talk about that anthology because they mentioned it and i know that you have an afterword in it uh, without spoilers, are you comfortable or allowed to talk yeah. about that? Oh, dark stars, you mean? Yeah, because that, I mean, come on, man. That's got every, not every, but that's got so many. That's an all-star cast. Like, on the top of my head, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, Al- Almakatsu, uh, John Yu, Josh Mallerman, Carolyn Kepnis, and uh, Stephen Graham Jones. I know there's more, but I that's just who I remember. Well, John, John, John Langdon is in there, actually. John Langdon. Oh. Okay. Priya Sharma, she's there. I mean, they're, they're terrific stories because I mean, I read, I, I did the afterword. Yeah. I did. I mean, I contributed the story too, actually. But I did. So I've read them all. I think we've got one more coming. Better not say who from because, but but because that's a bit late. But you know, so we won't say that. But no, it's a, it's a splendid book. I'll tell you. Uh, incidentally, I think John Taft's story is quite extraordinary. I mean, really, you know, um, absolutely over the edge, powerful stuff. Uh, so yeah, I'm, look look forward to that book. You'll be glad you did. Uh, yeah, we're we're gonna have John on and hopefully others for that. That'd be amazing. Uh, we're very excited for that book as fans of the genre in general. Um, we're also gonna pre- we're gonna pretend that segue was intentional too. Yes. To John F. D. Taff. Super intentional. So speaking of awkward segues, uh, Ramsey, you mentioned that you had an original book, rather as opposed to a reissue, uh, mm. coming out in June. Somebody's yeah. voice. Um, yeah. What can you tell us about that? Well, now it's. A, it, I, I was going to say it's a departure, but it's probably no more a departure than half a dozen other books that I've written. So you know, if there's half a dozen books, it's not really a departure, is it? It's it's like one of the threads of what I do. It's not supernatural though. Um, it's a psychological thriller, shall we say? It's certainly a crime novel. Okay, basically, um, <coughs> central character, crime novelist, who has run into problems with his new novel because uh, people are saying that he's 
basically, you know, he's 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 taken themes of child abuse and gender reassignment, and basically, he's being accused of exploiting these without, you know, having had his, uh, you know, experienced them himself. So, his publishers to try and restore things um, hire him as a ghostwriter for a survivor of child abuse. But as he works on this book and as it as, as it's published. Um, his own sense of identity and, you know, having lived through the experiences in the way of, of the person whose life he is writing becomes increasingly undermined. And it also becomes apparent that not all the reminiscences of, of, the, of the person whose life he is writing are literally true. And some of the people who are supposed to be dead aren't and, you know, basically want, want their say. Um, that's how the book develops. There's more to it than that. Um, it's um well it's disquieting i hope it sounds like it's very relatable i know for example the silence of the lambs and red dragon tom saris's uh two first two hannibal lecter books were i those are two of my favorite i hold those up as the high, the best crime books ever like dark horror crime that's right. just my opinion they they're awesome but um i know that they were criticized Sansa Lambs for attacking, uh, I believe it was transgenders, and then Red mm-hmm. Dragon for portraying someone with, forgive me if I'm messing up the diagnosis, but schizophrenia. Um, mm-hmm. th- that's an extreme case. My wife's a social worker, and she kind of instilled in me about uh, approaching why she's in like horror movies, how they exploit that. But uh, from I can see those points. I. That's not how I feel about those books, but I bring that up because you're, that's what your story is pretty much about, and I, th- I think that's super relatable. And uh, put your spin on it is going to be, you sold me, man. I want to read that right now. <laughs> oh, okay. Don't, 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 <laughs> there'll be, be advanced copies pretty soon, I think, yeah. Oh, is that that's through Flame Tree, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, I thought yeah. so. Just had to double check. Well, yeah. well, two, one each. Uh, I wanted to jump to one more thing. Um, I found something very interesting. It was from April 1990. Uh, You were a part of a roundtable discussion with legends, you yourself being one of them, called Horror Cafe with host Clever Barker. Uh, Some of the guests there were Lisa Tuttle, Roger Corman, John Carpenter, and Peter Atkins. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're into horror, whether it's cinema or literature, you should check that out. It's free on YouTube that I know of, but I don't, I don't know where else you can get it. Um, how'd that even come up, man? Like, who was that Barker's idea? No, no, it was the BBC. I think it was the actual BBC rather than the rather okay. than the company that sold it to them. But the the idea was going to be that. Uh, there was there would be a series of programs like this, in each of which you'd have half a dozen, you know, specialists in that field, mm. and they get round around. They would actually do this thing of of getting them around a table and actually serving them a dinner, you know, with you know food and wine. Uh, and you would probably observe I ate most of it, as as uh, many people pointed out at the time. <laughs> was, I was just clever editing that. Everybody else said as well. They just cut to me whenever I'm eating, bastard. That's different. Uh, <laughs> but it was going to be a series. I don't know what the, all of them were going to be, but one was alternative comedy, in fact. So they had six 
alternative comedians, like, like edgy comedians, you know. I don't know who they were, but apparently um, what happened was, uh, whereas the horror writers, as you've seen, or anybody who you know, looks at it on YouTube will see, we all got on horror writers and horror filmmakers all got on extremely well, you know. Yeah. Um, the, the comedians didn't get on at all. And they started swearing at each other. And, you know, I think eventually flinging things at each other across the table. And the, fact <laughs> the, producer, the producer eventually came out because obviously you know these things were were filmed for twice as long as they run, so there's a lot of stuff that is a doubt. The producer came out and said, "You know, listen, guys, you know, cool it." And one of them got it up and butted her, and that was that. We, that's why you never saw that program, and that's why the series never took off as a series because they said, "Christ, no, we've had enough," you know. But, you know, the horror writers, we, we got to be it, therefore. And so it's going to be The Something Cafe for, I think, six episodes. And the Horror Cafe is the only one that ever got together. But no, they, they, they came up with the idea of getting us all, 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 all together. And, you know, I think I, I can't remember now whether we actually sat down and said, OK, who's going, to, who's going to be, you know, the chairperson? And we all said, OK, Clive, you're it. Or whether Clive suggests he should be it. We all concurred. Um, but basically, you know, what you see is pretty well how it went. Now, I'm sorry, I know you're going to contradict me here, so don't, you don't contradict me, guys. Keeping my so, mouth so, shut. I'm, no, 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 I'm only teasing, but what I'm saying, <laughs> as I'm concerned, the one, one of the things it shows is I'm no bloody good at brainstorming at all. You know, I'm really not much good at that. I, I'm, a, I'm a sort of solitary creator. You know, I do it, I do it myself all in my own head. And going around the table with six other people saying, OK, you know, now what's your idea? Let's, let's tell this story as a round robin. That was really where I kind of seized up. So thank God I had sufficient wine to drink. Um, uh, but, you know, I didn't do too well at that, I don't think. And I, I mean, there's one, there's one cut. I mean, you could probably leave this in unless you, you have very sensitive listeners. But um, John Carpenter, you know, he, he was immediately before me in the round. So he eventually brought in quantum physics, which is then and still maybe you know, a favorite thing of his. I think it shows up. You can sort of see undercurrents of it, uh, undercurrents of it in Prince of Darkness, actually. Um, but it was something oh, he was very... Yeah, definitely. Okay. So he, he does his, you know, his little bit of the story and ends up with a sort of quantum physics thing. And in the original cut, I sort of stare at him and say, fuck you, John. And uh, that, is, that is not now in the broadcast, uh, I'm afraid. But, uh, <laughs> I'm going to come up with something, some, some, sorry, some sorry addition to the story. Anyway, we all had a great time. And then it turned out to be Roger Coleman's birthday. So they wheeled out this bloody crate of champagne after we'd finished filming. And um, we all glugged champagne immoderately. And we eventually kind of poured into taxis and taken off to the Ritz or wherever we were staying. It was some, or the Savoy, I forget which one, some very palatial hotel. And I remember getting up in the morning thinking, oh, I don't feel too bad, actually. Um, went down to breakfast. There was wonderful buffet, best buffet I've ever seen outside of Singapore, where you where the buffets are so big that you see people lost in the maze three days later, still looking for their table. Uh, but but the Savoy or whatever whatever buffet it was in London that was pretty good too. So I I loaded up my plate, went and took back to my table, sat down and kind of took up my knife and fork and stared at this, and suddenly went away from it very fast and was not seen again for quite a long time. So unfortunately the champagne did have its effect, and uh, I, I remember sitting on the train but eventually back to Liverpool thinking. 
I'm just going to die. I'm just, I'll die. Let me die. I just want to die. Let me die. I'll die. I'll just sit there and die. And then I went to sleep and came, in, came into Liverpool. Felt fine, you know. So there you are. I don't know what that proves, but anyway. Proves the resilience, the resilience of the horror writer. That's what it proves. It also, I like to point out how you said that the comedians were all going at each other. The horror writers were having a good time, which you can pick up as a, <laughs> as a viewer. <laughs> You can't. Not everyone. I don't like making blanket statements because you know they're they're not accurate. But most horror writers are very kind. Some of the kindest people mm-hmm. that you'll ever meet. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I lost my train of thought again. I'm so sorry. It's not how we creep up on you behind you with our knives. <laughs> that's why we're so nice. Don't you understand that? Don't you understand? Oh, I don't like that at all. (laughs) (laughs) I I just remembered Lisa Tuttle. I'm so happy that she was on there because I maybe maybe it's just me, but I don't see your disgust enough. Uh, Just like uh, you got you got people like you and uh, Joe R. Lansdale and um, Stephen King, obviously, who are always talked about. No, but guys like Ronald Kelly, you. not you. I'm sorry. You're talked about a lot, too. I, I don't know. I said you. People like Ronald Kelly and Lisa Tuttle, they've been around since the 70s and 80s, and I would like to see them come back. Uh, and Yeah. There, I know. I'm glad to say there is a reprint, recent reprint of, of A Nest of Nightmares, the Lisa's collection. That, yeah. that very rare for a long time, but now now you can buy it. So everybody go and, go and buy it now, guys, before you do anything else. I, yeah, that uh, was what's the name? Vandercourt or Valencourt? Valencourt. Yes, yes, yes. I saw, I saw the cover. Cover. It looks gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ramsey. Ramsey. Uh, so we're kind of wrapping down, and I don't want to miss anything that you want to promote or talk about. Um, so, Brennan, I want to know if you have anything that you want to discuss before we kind of ask our final questions. Well, obviously, no. the, flame, the flame tree. Oh, I'm sorry, Brandon. You 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 wanted to say. No, I was just going to say, I don't have anything to add, so uh, Ramsey, go ahead. Well, I just called you Brandon, so that's a bloody good start, isn't it? Sorry about that. Okay. Okay, well, listen, uh, yeah, well, of course, they're all the Flame Tree books. They're, 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 you know, they're great guys, and, and Don, Don is splendid, as is Nick Wells, you know, is, 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 is over here in England, but all the whole team. I'm extremely happy with them, and I, you know, I hope they do extremely well. Oh, they're doing extremely well for me, I'll tell you that. So that, that <laughs> you know, Flame Tree generally, and they have got, as you say, they're going to be doing more backlist, but they have got several other books of mine. And actually, you know, they've got uh, 13 Days by Sunset Beach, for instance, which is a, a recent novel, which I'm, again, I'm quite fond of that one, you know. Hmm. Um, PS Publishing, now, they have got currently two huge retrospective volumes of short stories of mine called phantasmagorical stories so uh you know those those are um you know my my selection of well you know from like 60 years of short fiction really you know i've tried to 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 do an overview there and over a thousand pages of them by gum um there's (laughs) there's, uh ah there's limericks limericks of, uh, God, what am I calling it? There's my limerick collection, anyway, which is a, a history of horror fiction in the form of 50 limericks, let me tell you. Hmm. Um, 
Let me see. Can I do one? Um, never, oh, yes, there's an M.R. James. Here's an M.R. James limerick for you. Never mutter near Magnus's casket, for it won't to pop off if you ask it. Once the locks have dropped off, that demonic old toff will trash a lot more than your gasket. There you go. That's M.R. James of the Limerick. Oh, my goodness. That's a tongue twister. Well, that, That's well an done. exclusive. We have never had anybody read limericks on the uh, show before. <laughs> oh, well, just just stop me now. you get some more. Uh, what else am I doing? Um, well, yeah, the other thing, P.S. are going to be doing my collected uh, reviews column from Video Watchdog. Uh, you know, I did film reviews over there for a long time. Uh, there'll be a second non-fiction collection just of general stuff. And finally, last but not least, and this is the one you never thought you were going to hear me say, unless you knew about it anyway, um, a study of the Three Stooges. No, I didn't. Whoa, no, I did not expect that. Well, it's actually called Six Stooges and Counting. And if you know about the Stooges, you'll understand that title, you know, because there were at least... You know, six not counting fake champs, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, the strangest career in some ways of any comedy team in Hollywood. And I, I've got to say, you know, the more I watch them, the more interesting they become. You know, I think, you know, I, I, I was, you know, long ago I dismissed them as being like, you know, I mean, I mean I'm a Laurel and Hardy man particularly, and, and Keaton and Chaplin, Harold Lloyd. But there's a whole lot more to the Stooges than... Uh, than I thought there was when I originally encountered their films. And you know, I've watched all of their short films now, well, several times, actually. And the more I see, then the more I, the more I see to see, you know. So um, that's, in the, that's in the pipeline. It'll be a while yet before it's completed. Well, I'm curious to find, uh, find out when that comes out and whatnot. That, that is definitely unexpected from at least my... <laughs> <laughs> Um, so curious, what are you currently reading? Right now, The Fisherman, the John Langan, and and very fine it is, I think. Yeah, um, and also, oh, also, oh, a book called Oh Lord, now by Jeff Young. It's his reminiscence of off fifties Liverpool, which I hadn't read when I wrote The Searching Dead, but you know. <laughs> It's resurrecting all sorts of memories I'd forgotten. It's like my own memories. Maybe some I didn't even know I had, you know? Um, <laughs> which is called Ghost Town, called Ghost Town. Okay. So those, those are the two things I'm doing right now, reading. Brennan, what are you reading? I am uh, semi-between things right now. I just finished uh, Clementine's Awakening by Jennifer Susi. It's kind of a um, southern gothic ghost story. Uh, with a bit more violence to it than I guess I expect out of a Southern Gothic ghost story, but maybe that's just me. Uh, and I'm about to jump into Todd Keesling's A Life Transparence, the first uh, book he's got in a trilogy that he started, well, that he wrote the first two books to. Gosh, Patrick, do you know when he did that? While I want to say like 10 years ago he started it. I can't. Could have been almost 10 years, yeah. So he so, wrote the third book in that series, and he's got them all being reissued, and then book three will be out for the first time through Bloodshot this year. Actually, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Takiism before, Ramsey, but he came out with a book last year called Devil's Creek, and he builds up an excellent atmosphere. He has this Lovecraftian god in it that 
I haven't read before. I I think it's it's worth a read if you're ever looking for a new title. Yeah, yeah, I'll check him out. Check, I've heard of him, but not read him. So yes, I'll definitely give him a shot. He's a really kind person too. Um, he's been personally very helpful to me uh, and a good friend. So he, okay. I think his name's gonna blow up eventually too. He's well, his his book's up for the uh, up for the Stoker this year. So pulling pulling for him. Hoping it, for him. Yeah, okay. It, okay. it seems like it's a Salem's Lot sort of deal where it's just a tome of a book that's going to last for decades. Um, I am reading right now. I know listeners can't see this, but it is called Heart Strange and Dreadful by an author named Tim McGregor. It's, uh, it's a history horror uh, based in the 1800s in New England. Um, I'll keep it at that. And... Uh, I'm also reading Jennifer Susie's book that Brennan just mentioned. Uh, two listeners that forgot or need a reminder, possibly. Uh, Ramsey Campbell's The Searching Dead, part one of the trilogy. We're having a paperback giveaway. All you have to do is go to dead underscore headspace for more details. And um, maybe you can win a copy absolutely free. It's easy to... Put your name in, um, just pay attention to that profile, and uh, you might win it. And uh, last question there, Ramsey, is where can people follow you? Oh, uh, on Facebook. You'll find me on Facebook, uh, just as Ramsey Campbell, and on Twitter as uh, as Ramsey Campbell, believe it or not. You know, <laughs> so the John's completely gone. So no confusion <laughs> there. It's all Ramsey Campbell out there, man. Yeah. And uh, I'd just like to take an opportunity to uh, throw out a little ad for a newer author. Uh, his name's Hawk, indigenous uh, horror writer. Um, I'm wearing his shirt. Audio audio listeners won't see it, but uh, it is for his press called Black Hills Press. You, all you got to do is go to shanehawk.com slash merch for his T-shirts. They're pretty awesome. He came up with a new book, self-published book called Anoka. Um, in case uh, you have not read Indigenous Horror, well, Stephen Graham Jones is a great start, so is he. Uh, Ramsey Campbell, we've taken almost two hours of your time. I can't believe we got to talk to you, man. It's just been so easy. Uh, it's been a pleasure. You are one of the easiest people, person, people. <laughs> I can't talk. I'm stuttering. You are one of the easiest people to talk to. No uh, The reason you're blocking on that is because you know I'm not really a person you did tell me you're gonna take your mask off so i'm a little uh little scared to end the episode <laughs> luckily for you it's too dark you can't really see it and uh we would just like to extend this uh, we would like to talk to you any other time in the future uh it would be our pleasure brennan any final thoughts sir Nope, I echo what you said. He is the uh, very easy-to-talk-to humanoid-like creature. (laughs) (laughs) Ramsey, any final thoughts, sir? No, no, no. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you guys. Thank you very much for having me. And I hope people are entertained. Because I like to entertain people. And if they're not entertained, I come and entertain them in the dark. Dead Headspace. Before we start, we always talk to every guest super quick. 
Is there anything you don't want us to talk about? If so, we will not bring it up, and uh, I'll take a note of it. Um, elephants. I prefer not to discuss elephants. No but if elephants. we have to, if we have to, I'll do it. How's that? <laughs> David, I guess we're going there. Have you guys seen the film Relic at all? Relic? I have not. No, no. I haven't. I know what it is, but though. With um, Emily Mortimer. Um, it's pretty good. I mean, it depends on how you feel about something like the Babadook, which ends up very obviously symbolic in the last, you know, few minutes. And mm-hmm. this does that trick as well. But the one thing I will say about the Relic is it has a scene around the 60-minute the mark, which is more like a nightmare than anything I've ever seen in a film. It was just like living through a nightmare for about 10 minutes. It's absolutely terrifying. Yeah, check that out. Relic, RRL. Like a nightmare you you would have yourself, you know. Well, I mean, David Lynch movies are like nightmares. David <laughs> Lynch is, is imposing on you, which is fine. But this is like something I could genuinely imagine going to bed tonight and having that precise nightmare, you know, and thinking, my God, this will never end. But I won't ruin it for you. Take a look sometime. I, I just wrote down. That. Yeah, I got to check. If you're recommending it, yeah, I'm going to check it out. <laughs> <All right. laughs> That's fair. <laughs>